The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 1, 1 through 4, and Luke 24, 13 through 32. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty among the things you have been taught. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleophas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, because God and all the people, and how our chief priests and ushers um, and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since these have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn while we were talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
The Word of God it is more desired, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, uh, we are so thankful uh, for this, your Word. And Lord, I ask simply for one thing, uh, and that is that uh, you'd get me out of the way this morning, uh, that Jesus would shine forth. Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see that wherein we have failed. Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf, has mightily prevailed, for we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head, and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, Caitlin, I'm going to tell you, you got me ready to preach. I knew it was going to be good, but you holding out on me when we talked earlier. That was fantastic. Um, listen, when I was in first grade, uh, Mrs. Selma Love, my first grade Sunday school teacher, gave me a gift, and it wasn't for good behavior, probably no surprise to any of y'all, but it was for quarterly perfect attendance, April, May, June of 1971, in my first grade Sunday school class, Mrs. Selma Love gave me this little pocket New Testament with the Psalms. This thing never left my hands as a little boy. As a little first grader, I just carried it with me. I would stand in front of the mirror at times and just hold it and see myself there holding this little, this little Bible. And there's this little boy over here on the side with black hair. My hair used to be black, if you can believe that. And Jesus with his arm around him. And I would just imagine that was me talking with the Lord Jesus. Then, uh, then came high school, and I got this little Bible right here, and it stayed in my back pocket all the time. And as a high school student, I started memorizing Scripture. First, first passage I ever memorized in my life was Romans 12, 1 and 2 from this very Bible. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then I went on, and the second passage I ever memorized was Psalm 119.46. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, and will not be put to shame. And then the third verse I ever memorized was Psalm 119.96. To all perfection I see a limit, but your word, O Lord, is boundless. To all perfect, even perfection itself is limited, but this word is boundless. And I memorize these things from this little Bible right here. And then there was this Bible, my daddy's Bible. He won this King James large print Bible in a pew packing contest at our church. Preacher announced a couple of Sundays early, I'm going to give this Bible away to whoever can pack out the most pews. And my daddy determined he was going to win this Bible, and he did. Now, the problem was in the convoy from Lebanon to Gallatin to go to church, he got pulled over and received a speeding ticket because he was so committed to getting there and packing out enough pews to win this Bible. But I remember waking up in the morning to this sound right here. of him turning the pages of his Bible and reading. Then I would doze off back to sleep, and then he'd come yank the covers off of me and tell me it was time to go to work with him at the service station that, uh, that, he, that he ran. See, the Bible was a part of my very foundation. Then I went to college. Then I went to college, and very soon my professors told me, David, you need, this was, this was a college where I was doing theological study, doing a degree in Christian education, the denominational school in which I grew up. My professors told me early on, David, you need to have a faith that can remain a genuine faith without having to accept mythological and biological impossibilities like a historical Adam and Eve, like Jonah and the great fish, like a biological impossibility such as the virgin birth of Christ or, or the resurrection of Christ from the dead. David, you need to realize 
realize uh, that when the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Christ, it's not talking about a physical event, but, but when the principles of, of love and, and sacrifice and caring for your neighbor uh, came to life in his followers, in that sense, the Spirit of Christ rose all over again. The Bible is full of errors. It's full of contradictions. It was full of inconsistencies. I was introduced to the writings of a man named Rudolf Bultmann, his famous statement, Man kennick elektrischlicht und radioapart benutzen. We cannot use electric lights and radios, and in the events of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. Well, here's the reality. One need not be um, a critical New Testament scholar of last century to wonder about such things. The Bible is a strange book in, in many ways, and it challenges my presuppositions. It challenges my sense of autonomy. It challenges my comfort level. It challenges the way I spend my money. It challenges the way I speak about and, and think of and treat others. It, it challenges the way that, that I think about sex and self. It, it can be difficult to understand at points. A few years ago, there was a, a lady at this church who bought her husband a, a big, fat study Bible, and he came up, and he, he wagged that Bible in my face. He said, David, this is a big book, and it's really intimidating, and I don't even know where to begin. And the reality is probably a lot of us feel that way when, when we come to our Bibles. Now, I teach courses in Christian apologetics for seminaries uh, that train men and women uh, for various forms of ministry in the PCA and other church communities. Uh, that idea of apologetics comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where Peter says, uh, but set apart Christ in your heart as holy and always be ready to give a reason or to give an answer when those ask you for the reason for the hope that you have, but this do with gentleness and respect. And in the Greek, that, that word, always be ready to give an answer or a reason, that word is the word apologia. It means a defense of the Christian faith. Um, and, and so part of my, my life's work really has been in the realm of, of apologetics, of philosophical, theological, scientific apologetics. Uh, probably my, my whole the rest of my life, as the Lord gives me breath, will continue to be devoted to that. And, and so I read a lot of, of technical and, and scholarly things along those lines. I read a lot of technical and scholarly works by atheists, but, but I also try to stay in touch with about 20 different atheistic meme accounts on Instagram, because that's where you see it really get punchy and really get cheeky. That's where you see the rubber meeting the road in terms of the conversation that's uh, happening. Uh, some of my favorites are things like Ian McClellan. You remember he played Gandalf the Great, you shall not pass. I've always thought that the Bible should have a disclaimer in the front saying, this is fiction. Or, or maybe Ricky Gervais, he's a, he's a very cheeky British comedian, and, and look, his, his atheistic memes are usually rather easily dismantled, but, but they are cheeky and enjoyable. It's almost as if the Bible was written by racist, sexist, homophobic, violent, sexually frustrated men instead of a loving God. Weird. Or Isaac Asimov, who said properly read the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. Um, Penn Jillette, comedian and magician, uh, usually pretty thoughtful. I usually pay attention. Take some time and put the Bible on your summer reading list. Try and stick with it cover to cover. Not because it teaches history. We've shown you it doesn't. Read it because you'll see for yourself what the Bible is all about. It sure isn't great literature. If it were published as fiction, no reviewer would give it a passing grade. There are some vivid scenes and some quotable phrases, but there's no plot. Hang on to that. There's no plot, no structure. 
There's a tremendous amount of filler, and the characters are painfully one-dimensional. Whatever you do, don't read the Bible for a moral code. It advocates prejudice, cruelty, superstition, and murder. Read it because we need more atheists, and nothing will get you there faster than reading the damn Bible. For our series, Doubting Christianity, I've been given the question for us to consider, isn't the Bible unreliable and outdated? Now, I'm well aware that in one 30-minute sermon, we cannot approach all of the legitimate questions and doubts, even discomfort some of us feel with the Bible. The Bible's too big for that. Uh, Your questions and doubts are too important and deserve uh, more nuanced uh, interaction than we are afforded uh, in a a 30-minute or so sermon. That is why, uh, for those of you who do not already have a core community, uh, this summer I'll be offering a course entitled Sweeter Than Honey, Trusting, Reading, and Living the Bible. And we'll talk about the Bible's trustworthiness, its inspiration, its sufficiency, how to understand it and read it and apply it to our lives. And we will not skirt the hard questions. I need to issue a caveat. I'm about to lay some heavy stuff on y'all. This is not going to be chicken soup for the soul. Not that it ever is here, but it's sure not going to be this morning. And why am I going to lay heavy stuff on you? If you're thinking, okay, look, David, it's a holiday weekend. I just wanted a couple of inspirational nuggets to get me ready for tomorrow. This is not the sermon for you. But why am I going to do this? Why am I going to lay heavy stuff on you? Because I love you and I respect you. C.S. Lewis See, Christ told us not only to be harmless as doves, but also as wise as serpents. He wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable, as good children are. But he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and in first-class fighting trim. The proper motto is not, be good, sweet maid, and let whoever can be clever, but... Be good, sweet maid, and don't forget that this involves being as clever as you can be. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. Here's the reality. You don't need a PhD. You who are trusting in Christ have as your foundation, according to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, the mind of Christ. And by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you can understand the things of God that we're going to discuss this morning. Things like these that I want to briefly consider Three crucial and unavoidable, if we're going to be intellectually honest, three crucial and unavoidable uh, facets of the question before us, a reliable historian, the reality of our predicament, and a resurrected man. A reliable historian. Luke writes as a historian. He was a travel companion of the Apostle Paul. He wrote a two-volume account of the story of Jesus and the early disciples for a man named uh, Theophilus. In fact, look back at chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He writes these two volumes around the close of the book of Acts prior to the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul, which took place somewhere between 64 and 67, prior uh, to Neronian persecution of Christians beginning in A.D. 65. And so he wrote Luke and Acts somewhere around A.D. 62, and he cites as his sources eyewitnesses of the events and the apostles themselves, enough of whom were still living that, that they could have called BS on his entire project were it not reliable history. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, that's all well and good. Let's say Luke did write an orderly, careful, accurate account of the Jesus story, but that was so long ago. 
We don't actually have the manuscripts, the, the, the papyrus on which he himself uh, wrote. How do we even know if what we have uh, is in the New Testament reliably close to the original text? It's a valid question. Um, I want to see this chart here very, very quickly. I'm not going to go through all of this, but you know we rarely ask that question about Homer's Iliad, written around 900 B.C., our earliest extant copy is around 400 B.C., a time span of some 500 years. We have 643 copies. Or, or what if Plato uh, written his works between 427 and 347 B.C.? The earliest copy that is extant is somewhere around 900, a time span of 1,200 years, seven copies. We never really ask about the, the accuracy of those manuscripts. Why is that? Because as important as those works of literature and philosophy are, Homer nor Plato call me to account before a living God. Yet when we think about the New Testament, written between 50 and 100 AD, we have as our earliest portion, uh, copies, portions between 100 and 150, actually in the 90s now, entire books between 150 and 200, and an entire New Testament around 300, a time span of 29 to 100 years. We have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts, over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, over 9,800 Syriac, Coptic, etc., and 36,000 plus patristic quotations in the early fathers. In other words, if every Bible was destroyed, we could fish out all of the quotations of the Bible from the patristic early fathers of the church, and we would have the Bible accurately presented for us. In other words, beyond any shadow of doubt, beyond any reasonable doubt, the evidence is so overwhelming that the manuscript copies we have give us such an accurate picture of the original Greek autograph of the New Testament. Now, those are the kind of questions we're going to be discussing this summer, and those things those things are important. They really are uh, important things for us to think about, and we'll consider that kind of information. But it's the next thing that Luke says here in this opening little prologue here of his gospel uh, that, that we need to deal with. Uh, the next thing that Luke says here will not let us do some sort of post-postmodern smoothie boy shuffle in order to evade it. Whatever you may make of this next statement, let's at least be willing to have the conversation about it. That you may have certainty Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. When we approach the idea of certainty, especially when so much around us seems to be so transient, broken dreams, disillusionment, despair, defeat, disappointments, feels like life maybe has left you with both feet planted firmly in midair. Um, maybe you've been deeply betrayed, hurt used, um, perhaps even by someone referencing biblical texts while they abuse you. When we approach the idea of certainty, we are entering the realm of epistemology, the study of, of the question of knowledge. What is truth? How do we know what we know? By what authority do we know and assert anything? Now, look, I know it's a little early in the day to be using words like that. I promise, I think it may be the only one such word I'm going to use in this, in this sermon. But all of you have epistemology, all of you. Right? And don't worry, it's not a rash. You don't need a cream to make it go away. All right? But all of us have epistemology. We all are concerned with, with epistemology. How do we know what we know? What is truth? How do we go about knowledge? What authority do we have for knowing anything? We're all concerned with it because we all have a worldview. Now, Ronald Nash, a philosopher, once said in its simplest terms, a worldview is a set of beliefs about the most important issues in life. He goes on to say that, that a worldview is an interpretive grid by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. 
James Sire, in his excellent little book, The Universe Next Door Set of Worldview, is a set of presuppositions, assumptions of which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold to consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic makeup of our worldview. He says, I'm convinced that for any of us to be fully conscious intellectually, we should not only be able to detect the worldview of others, but also be aware of our own worldview, why it is ours, and why in light of so many options we think it is true. We all have worldviews. We're all concerned with the big pieces of the worldview puzzle, right? Things like theology, the God question, the, the, the God question, what, what is God? Who is God, right? Who is God? Whoever he, she, or it may be, I need to know something about this God. It's an inescapable question we must be asking. Remember Dishwala's song from years ago, tell me all your thoughts on God because I really want to meet her? Or Joan Osborne, what if God were one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a holy rolling stone trying to make his way home? We cannot escape the theology question. Who is God? What is God? Anthropology. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be man? Are we, as neo-atheist Sam Harris once said, simply biochemical puppets with no inherent value or meaning, or are we, as Scripture has told us, created gloriously with dignity and potential as imagers of God? The question of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Another piece of the worldview puzzle, metaphysics. Is there anything beyond the physical around us and ethics? What's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, and who gets to make the rules about what's right and wrong. And so all of us, all of us are trying to piece those, those pieces of the puzzle together. Now, I, I want to be clear this morning, whether you think um, I am compelling or crazy, I at least want you to think I'm conspicuous. I at least want you to think that, that I'm clear as to the basis of my epistemology. I believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Proverbs 9, verse 10. I believe that Jesus, John 1, 1, is the logos, the reason of God, and that in him, Colossians 2, 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I believe, 1 Timothy 3, 16, that all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out. The Greek word is theonoustos. It means literally the very exhalation, the very breathing out of God, and is profitable, Paul says to Timothy, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I believe that apart from the triune God of the Bible and the Bible of the triune God, I cannot prove or consistently assert anything. I believe that the Bible is trustworthy because it tells me so. It is self-authenticating. Now, if you're tempted to say, oh, I got you now, David, I am going to charge you with circular reasoning. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm reasoning in a circle. In some philosophical argumentation, circular reasoning is considered a logical fallacy. Uh, but when it comes to worldview thinking and ultimate presuppositions by which each of us, listen carefully, by which each of us interprets and judges reality, there is no escaping circular reasoning. For we all view reality on the basis of some foundational or fundamental principle, and worldviews are ultimately circular as they cannot account for or justify or establish their foundational principle except by that principle itself. Like Scott said last week, we are all 
fundamentalists. In other words, if you seek to justify your foundational principle of epistemology by something other than that foundational principle, then that thing that is other is actually higher than your foundational principle, and that is actually your foundational or your fundamental principle. In other words, there is no such thing as escaping circular reasoning when it comes to ultimate issues. As Scott said, we are all fundamentalists. We all begin, ask questions, interpret, assert on the basis of our ultimate presupposition. The question is, can I account for reality and live out consistently my ultimate presupposition on the basis of that ultimate presupposition? The problem is not with circular reasoning, but with what we might call vicious circles. Uh, in which presumption, unsubstantiated by any coherent principle, is arbitrarily asserted. And the difference between that and a virtuous circle, such as the Christian faith, given to us in this reliable word, in which we alone can not only use logic, but account for logic on the basis of the character and wisdom of the triune God. We can not only discuss ethics, but account for a transcendent standard of right and wrong on the basis of the holiness of God revealed in scriptures. And even if I were to call my whole project into question by denying the infallibility of the Bible, I am, whether I am willing to acknowledge it or not, inscribing a infallibility to something else, namely myself, or some system of thought that is antithetical to the Christian faith. As one theologian has observed, infallibility is an inescapable concept. If men refuse to ascribe infallibility to Scripture, it's because the concept has been transferred to something else. The word infallibility is not normally used in these transfers. The concept is disguised and veiled, but in a variety of ways. Infallibility is ascribed to concepts, things, men, and institutions. Every philosophy is authoritarian in that while it may attack savagely all other doctrines of authority, it does so from the vantage point of a new authority. This new authority is basic pre-theoretical presumption, which is to, in totality religious and which rests on a particular concept of infallibility. Every man has his platform from which he speaks, and he assumes it is infallible or he wouldn't be speaking from it. To affirm that foundation without qualification is an inescapable requirement of human thought. And, and if you're sitting there thinking, no, 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 David, not so fast, because I believe in doubting everything. My foundational principle is that everything must be doubted. Well, if that is your position, fine, please know you're not the first on the scene. Philosopher David Hume, 1711 to 1776, said, and I quote, nothing can be more unphilosophical than to be positive or dogmatical on any subject. He says positively and dogmatically. Oliver Wendell Holmes, 1841 and 1935. To have doubted one's own first principles is the mark of a civilized man. Of course, that is in itself a first principle, and if taken seriously, collapses in on itself, doesn't it? Alfred North Whitehead, 1861 to 1947. I love this one. In philosophical discussion, the merest hint of dogmatic certainty as to finality of statement is an exhibition of folly. Is that your Final answer, Professor Whitehead? See, atheism cannot account for logic. Atheism cannot account for the normativity of nature, of the concept of personhood. How do you get personhood out of an impersonal universe? 
Objective meaning cannot be accounted for. Objective meaning in its relationship to language. Even though it assumes all these things to argue against Christianity. As Cornelius Van Til once said, atheism must borrow Christian epistemological capital in order to mount an argument against Christianity because atheism as a worldview does not have any of the prerequisites for intelligibility, predication, the laws of logic, the normativity of nature, any of these things. He observed one time on a train ride from Philadelphia to New York, a little girl sitting in her father's lap, playfully reaching up and slapping her dad's face. And it dawned on her, the only reason she could do that is because her father's lap was supporting her to begin with. As Greg Bonson once illustrated, to argue against the existence of the God of the Bible, and the Bible of that God is like arguing against the existence of, of oxygen, all the while breathing it in in order to form audible words. And atheistic scientism, not science of science, not science is the great gift of God, not science as the study of natural revelation where God has revealed himself. Not science is science, but atheistic scientism cannot account for the laws of logic upon which science depends. Atheistic scientism, which presupposes an ultimately random universe in which everything that exists is the random byproduct of time, chance, cause, and effect, cannot account for the normativity of nature upon which science depends. Atheistic scientism, with its foundational presupposition of an impersonal universe, cannot even account for personhood and human dignity. Hence, it is no wonder that such a worldview that denies man's unique and glorious identity as created imago dei would have no transcendent defense against reducing him to a meaningless casualty in the struggle of the strong eating the weak. In an impersonal universe, laws, logic, ethics, even language are merely personal or societal relativistic conventions with no claim to transcendent reality, such that even the charge of circular reasoning against the self-authentication of the Bible is ultimately a disconnected and meaningless utterance as it is built upon a presuppositional foundation that cannot account for its own foundation, things like order, meaning, and personhood. As C.S. Lewis once said, supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind, in that case, Nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me as a byproduct the sensation that I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism, and therefore I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Now, we're going to come up from the deep end of the pool here just for a second. But if you don't have a core community, there's more where that came from this summer. But I want to talk about the reality of our predicament. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 31 tells me why I need this word so desperately, why it is reliable, why it is so timely and relevant for me. Romans 18, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 tells me that David Filson left to himself. Though the evidence of God's existence is abundant and inescapable in creation, David Filson suppresses the truth. 
the truth conclusions of that evidence, not for lack of evidence, but for my love of wickedness, according to Romans 1, verses 18 to 19. I know God exists, but I became futile in my thinking or my epistemology, and my foolish heart became dark in verse 21. I traded the truth of God for a lie, Paul says, and I worshiped the creature rather than the creator, verse 25. And as the rest of that passage makes clear, ethics and epistemology always go hand in hand in symbiotic relationship. I am darkened in my thinking. I'm darkened in my wanting and my willing and my desiring. How did I get there? Well, we read about it, do we not? In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent tempts our first parents, comes along to Eve and says, did God really say you can't eat from every tree in the garden? He's holding out on you. You mean there's a tree that you can't eat from? He must not be good. Cast out on the goodness of God. And Eve responds, yeah, we can't eat of it, we can't even touch it. She's already bought into the lie, hasn't she? He's so not good to us, we can't even touch that tree. He says that when we do, we will surely die. Oh, you will not surely die. You see, God is not good or he wouldn't be holding out on you. And he can't be trusted, he's a liar. You will not die. In fact, he's quite insecure. He knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and ye shall be like God, determining good from evil. Now, you may be asking yourself, aren't we supposed to know good from evil? What's so wrong with that? They already knew good from evil. They had been given a word from above. The serpent says, doubt that word from above and generate your own word. You become your own God, determining for yourself on the basis of your own autonomy what is right, what is wrong. And they ate, and their eyes were open. Sure enough, he wasn't lying about that. Their eyes were open, and what did they see? What pathetic excuses for gods they turned out to be. And they were ashamed, and they were frightened. And they sewed together fig leaf unitards, and they tried to hide themselves. But fig leaves don't hide much. They hid from God, and God came, and he searched for them, not to punish them, but to protect them. He came, and he slayed, because we read in verses 27 and following that they were covered with garments of skin. He takes away their pathetic fig leaf onesies, and he covers them with a garment of skin. Blood had to be shed. Do we not read about that in Leviticus 17, 11, and Hebrews 9, 22? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Atonement was made, and they were covered. They were covered. Romans chapters 5 and 6, Jesus, the God-man, came as the last Adam. He came on a search and rescue mission for sinners like you and me, not to punish us, but to be punished himself. He was tempted in the wilderness to deny the word of God like the first Adam did, but each time he replied, it is written, it is written, it is written. He overcame temptation and the devil for us. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Old Testament, repairing what Adam and we had breached, affirming the Old Testament over and again in his teaching. John 10, 35, Matthew 15, 3, Mark 7, 13, Matthew 5, verse 18. God came and searched. God came and was himself slain because he's the Lamb of God, Revelation 5:12, slain before the foundation of the world. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we would become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5:21. He takes away our fig leaves and all of my pathetic excuses to hide from God and justify myself. He takes away my fig leaves and he clothes us with his righteousness, Isaiah 61, 
10, he saves our souls and he promises to save our bodies, right? That's why I tell you so often, Christian burial is never the disposal of a body, but the deposit of something precious for safekeeping. It is a resurrection deposit because Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, has promised to make a resurrection withdrawal. He saves our souls and promises to raise our bodies because this word and the system that it teaches us of worldview, this word and the Christianity that comes from this alone affirms the present and future beauty of our physicality and the physicality of our creation itself, he will make all things new. How can he do that? Because he's the resurrected man. Is the Bible outdated? Well, considering that the time, space, history, bodily, literal, physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the center point of human history, I'd suggest the question of time and relevance in the future has to be answered in light of its reality. The resurrected Christ, the historical evidence for which you have heard Scott argue every Easter Sunday morning for the past few years, he affirmed the Old Testament, as we heard Linda read, as he walked alongside these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, imagine the scene. He walks up on him, they are despondent. This one they had pinned all their hopes on to be Messiah. It's all come to nothing, he's been crucified. He comes alongside them. He opens Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, and basically says to them, every page of the scriptures either whispers or shouts my name, and he has a Bible study with them. He's about to leave, and they prevail upon him. No, stay with us. Stay. The the day is far spent. You you must stay with us. And, and, And he does, and there at the table, he, the last Adam, invited them to eat, bids them eat, gives them permission to eat. He breaks the bread, and when they did, their eyes were opened. And they saw there is a God, and it was him. And he vanished from their sight. And then they discussed their burning hearts, right? The word that they had heard, the word that they had tasted was like Jeremiah 20, verse 9, a fire in their bones they could not contain. And so fast they flew to find the 11 to tell them they had seen the risen Christ, and that he was recognized in the breaking of the bread. And lo and behold, there he stood among them, the evidence right in front of their very eyes, and they could see it. Because he had first made their hearts to burn, he let them see and touch him, and they tasted together. Then he promised that they would soon be commissioned. Read Acts 1 and 2. He promised that they would be commissioned, that they would go, they would preach, and they would be commissioned to write the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament. Now, perhaps you're sitting here thinking to yourself, if only I had what they had, if only I had what they had, the risen Christ opening the word for me, breaking bread with me, then I would believe. But think about it. You have here the Scriptures open and explain the risen Christ by His Holy Spirit ministering this Word to you, the risen Christ present in power, the bread about to be broken and tasted, Jesus touched and seen. The things I've said this morning have probably left some of us here with more questions, maybe even heated ones. That's okay. You know where to find me. I welcome the conversation. I really do. The question of the reliability, listen carefully, the question of the reliability and the relevance of the Bible is a crucial conversation, and we can have it. In fact, we cannot, we must not avoid it. But remember that apart from it, the reliability and relevance of the Bible and the worldview that it 
espouses, we cannot even begin to account for the very requisite foundations of ethics, epistemology, science, personhood, human dignity, hope for the future, and the list goes on and on. Apart from Scripture, we are left with the infallibility of our own fundamentalistic selves and whatever worldviews flow from it, from empiricism to atheism to, to doubting relativism, all of which by their very nature defy substantiation and sustainable argumentation and end up, without exception, hoist by their own petard. The question of the reliability and the relevance of Scripture is not ultimately a matter you can settle from some assumed position of epistemic neutrality. That neutrality does not exist. Since the garden, you and I, our thinking, our hearts have been under siege by sin and death. The question for us this morning is simply this, do you want your eyes open to see that there is a God and praise God, you and I are relieved of that self-appointed duty of being our own gods. Do you, want, do you want your heart to burn this morning? If you do, if you want your hearts to burn, here's the good news. The only reason you desire that in the first place is because he's already lighting a fire in you by his Holy Spirit. And he bids you, don't go, stay a while, eat with me, have your eyes open. See that he has come, he has searched for you, he was slain for you, and he is saving you. So prepare our hearts for the Holy Supper.